Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You are listening to Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Mark. And today we have a bit of a different episode. Kevin Mellon joins the show. And while he does have a new EP out called Songs from the Giant's Chair, there's a lot more to him than just that. He's a comic book creator and a storyboard artist for The Vampire Diaries, Archer, and Hitmonkey. And we start off the whole show by discussing our mutual love of failure. But we move into his comic and musical influences like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mark Lanigan, and Phil Collins' era Genesis. Kevin explains why he decided against college to attend a place called the Kubert School, how he got into storyboarding, and exactly what a storyboard artist does. He also talks to me about how many albums he wrote and discarded before releasing his new EP. Pick up songs from the Giants Chair wherever you get music. Follow him at Melon Music on Instagram or Kevin Mellon on Bandcamp. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. Support the show with a review. Some coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or merch at performanceanx.threadless.com. So now get ready for a very unique story and an all-around great guy with Kevin Mellon on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is Kevin Mellon on Performance Anxiety. We're going to talk about working on Archer, a little bit of uh, creative stuff, and my new album, Songs from the Giant's Chair, which is out on Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, I don't like that one, so let's do another one. Hey, listening to Performance Anxiety. This is Kevin Mellon. I'm here to talk about my new album, Songs from the Giants, out on Apple Music and Spotify. I'm also a storyboard artist and art director for Floyd County Productions, known for Archer on FXX and Hitmonkey on Hulu. Hey, is there enough in there for you to splice something usable? Okay. I was like, if you need another one, I'm happy. I can keep doing this all day. I just, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Because you'll notice, I'll just keep rewriting, rewriting it. So, like, ten more takes, and I'll have something to tell. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for uh, for joining me. This will be a lot of fun. Uh, sadly, I mean, I'm a new, I'm an, I'm, an, I'm a fan of your podcast, but I'm a fan because I, I found you through the interview you did with uh, Ken Andrews. Oh, cool! Yeah. So yeah, awesome. I'm a I'm a big Ken Andrews fan, big failure fan, and so I, and I'm obsessed with hearing him talk, process, and kind of happy things, but also his struggles, you know. Yeah. And he's very open and pragmatic about all of it, and it's just very inspiring to me. He really is, and he was. It, it took a while to to get him. I've I've known Kelly for several years now, and uh, it it took a while. Kelly's been on a few times, but it took a while to get Ken. And uh, I'm still trying to get Greg. I don't know if Greg will ever do it, but yeah. he's he's the most reclusive yeah. of all of them. Which makes sense. I mean, throughout their history, I mean, even listening to 
to Kelly and, and Ken talk about Greg, they talk about him as if he's hard to get a hold of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and they've got a direct line. So yeah, yeah. No, it's I'm stoked. I'm supposed to see them uh, here coming up in Atlanta. So I'm stoked to see they're gonna they're opening act as them in documentary form. So I'm stoked to see that. Oh, who's who's opening up? The they're playing a little bit of that documentary that's coming oh, out next oh, the, year. Yeah. So that's the opening. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it too. Um, so I became a fan in the '90s after they broke up. Oh, really? So for me, it was uh, so. So when so the first time I ever saw them live, not in you know YouTube form, was uh, that that first reunion full tour. Uh, you know them doing Fantastic Planet, which like, that was what 2014, 2015, 2015. Yeah, yeah. And so that was that just blew my mind, and I'm like, in my I'm kind of wondering like. Is it better that I didn't see them doing it back then? Because they're so much sure and accomplished now. So the material itself, like it's almost like they, they have aged into forming the material as it should be. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I don't know that that's true, but that, that fe- that's how that was my feeling when I was watching them. So. I, yeah. And I, I, didn't, I didn't get a chance to see them live. And I was a failure since Magnified. And uh, um, I, I never had a chance to see them in the 90s. Uh, Something always came up whenever they were in the air. Cause I grew up in New Jersey and, uh, something always came up when, when they would come around, I was never able to de- you know, money issues or other issues. And, you know, it's just, uh, I was really t- ticked off. And then when they came around again, I had kids and all, and I, in, in, you know, 2014, my kids were a lot younger and wasn't going to concerts at all. So finally yeah. with, uh, in the future, your body will be the first thing from your mind came out. I was finally able to, uh, to catch him. And, uh, I used to be a photographer for years and years and, uh, Kelly got me a photo pass. The first one I'd gotten and, uh, fired away. I mean, I, you know, shot hundreds of shots and then sent them a whole bunch. And that kind of started me getting back. You're getting into live music photography and that's, that's kind of my hobby right now. The, yeah. I have my no, full-time job. Well, I, I didn't realize so it's one of those things where like when you uh, I saw your personal Instagram earlier, I was like, Oh, this is really cool because 'cause I'd seen the performance anxiety page and you know, it's all the interviews obviously. Yeah. But I, yeah, so like, like seeing seeing that you were doing that stuff, I was like, Oh, that's killer. Like that's you know, oh, it's like I you know, I, I go to shows and I go to watch the show. I feel like if I were a photographer photograph, I wouldn't even know what happened around me. I would be so focused on trying to get that image. You know what I mean? So yeah, it does. It's it depends on the venue. You know, yeah. So documenting that stuff gets tough, especially when you're short yeah. like me. I'm I'm five foot six, so I can't like tower okay. over the crowd and just. If I do that, I'm just putting my arms up and just shooting willy nilly and hoping I get something. Yeah, no kidding. No, I mean, that's the one thing about going to the shows is like, I'm six one. you know, it's like over 300 pounds. Like I'm a big dude, you know, and like, it, like I, I tend to be stand in the back arms crossed guy, Yeah, you know, but like, but I, I, I was a bouncer uh, for a long, for a few years back in the mid 2000s. So like, I basically, I sat in the, I guess that's what you call it, but I, uh, I sat in the, between the barricades and on the stage. So it's like, I worked a bunch of shows, like, you know where like like i worked a mudvane show where chad is just on me in in, and just holding him you know because it was probably about a 1200 person club it was probably about a 1200 person club you know so like it's small enough that but you got him doing that or like like i remember like seeing glassjaw when they still had uh uh, the 
better than guitarist and a completely different section, you know? Yeah. It was, but it was on the worship and tribute tour, you know, but like Daryl's just like right there fucking singing his ass off, getting to see, you know, Justin play like that. But then I also work Cottonmouth Kings shows. Oh, wow. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those are a whole other animal unto themselves. Oh, so. I can imagine. <laughs> Man, I haven't heard of that band in a long yeah. time. Weirdly, they, I don't know what they do now, but back then they toured so regularly. I think throughout the course of the years there, I worked at least three or four of their shows and and, and always in different spots. Like there was one time, like, like the drummer had a lower sickle drum kit. So it was like a lowrider bike that he would sit on with the drums attached to it and everything. (laughs) Like that thing was crazy. Um, They were, they would load. And also I helped with loading. So they would load into that stuff and like, it would take them hours to set it up. Man. Yeah. Anyways, and what I will say, I mean, this is totally random, but like one of the coolest things I was just thinking about this the other day, because um, here in Kansas for Planet Comic Con, the uh, comic convention that happens here in town every year, um, but we were talking about like celebrities who, you know, who, who can be a or celebrities to go above and beyond. And they were talking about this one celebrity who stayed up until like literally like 30 minutes before his flight. And then they had to like hyperspeed him to the, you know, just so he could try and get as many of the fans happy as possible. Yeah. And it got me to thinking about it. There was this, we, there was this one night when um, uh, Andrew WK played and he basically, the venue was, the show was done by like midnight or 1230, something like that. Right. The venue closed at two. He stayed until his boss made him leave, like his mature manager made him leave till like four in the morning, just signing wow. everybody's stuff, talking with everyone, taking photos with whoever wanted it. Like we had to, so we set up a, like the venue closed and they were like, we'll pay you to stay after, but we, the bar had literally has to close legally or whatever, something like that. Yeah. So they told his bouncers like hang with him and whoever wants to stay with him and leave gets paid and all that, you know? And so it's like, we just stayed until literally he hugged the last person and got on his bus and drove out of town. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And it always like, it's, it's, that's always stuck with me that like, we do these things like creatively that affect people in levels that, that we, a, will never understand, but I'll be completely understand because that's why we do this. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Anyways. Yeah. All right. (laughs) We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performanceanxiety. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast.
you are an artist on a lot of different levels. And to find out a little bit about where you, how you got to where you are now, I'd like to find out a little bit about your history, like how you got into the different types of art you're in. So you're, you're a visual artist and a musician from Kansas City. What was your first, was it comics or was it music or was it something else? It's it's probably a little a, a little bit of both all of it at the same time, but I do specifically remember um, being very young, like you know, early single digits, probably between the age of like four and seven or something like that. And my parents they used to take me to Branson, Missouri, which for those who don't know is kind of a the redneck Las Vegas of <laughs> you know, the, the Midwest. And I don't, and I say redneck lovingly, I don't mean that derogatorily. I mean, it's like, it is, you know, it's a very like family driven, um, a lot of, but a lot of country, a lot of, you know, it's probably changed as I haven't been there in 30 years, but at the time, even back in when I was a little kid, it was still very, uh, bright lights, big city, but with very, you know, Midwestern, um, like a wholesome Las Vegas. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I don't, I don't know if Dollywood existed at that point. So maybe Dollywood has taken it over. Maybe. <laughs> um, so anyways, I, I, yeah, I remember we were, we were at one of the amphitheater, uh, not amphitheater, we were on the theaters there and I don't remember who was performing. I just remember that at one point the, the singer pointed to the guitar player, the guitar player stepped forward to kind of take their little, love. I am the guitar player solo. Mm-hmm. And I remember like telling, pointing to my, my mom and pointing to, telling my mom, pointing to that guy, like that I want to do that. I want to be that, you know? Yeah. Then within a few years later, I remember being in grade school within that same few years. Sorry, I should say within that same few years, I remember being in uh, early grade school, like, you know, first, second, somewhere around there. And this, this one kid uh, was drawing and he was blew my mind because, you know, my little kid mind, like these are amazing drawings. They're terrible because they were like, you know, probably been done by an eight year But my, my, my seven or eight year old brain like saw that and was like, Oh fuck, this is amazing. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and I tried to mimic what he was doing and very quickly started doing my own thing, you know? And so I don't know for me, those, those things all tie together. But the other, the other part of that is, is from a, uh, I'm an only child uh, and the neighborhoods I grew up in wasn't surrounded by a lot of kid, family families with kids and stuff like that. So a lot, and my parents worked a lot. Okay. So there was just a lot of time spent making shit up in my head. So that's <laughs> the storytelling part. That's the right, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just play, playing with my GI Joes and what is Destro getting up to this week <laughs> that, you know, that beachhead kick his ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and stuff like that. And like, and also seeing those cartoons, you know, getting into my, my late single digit ages, like eight, nine, 10, 11, stuff like that. I spent a lot of time in my head and making up stories in that, but then, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja along. And that was a huge, for whatever reason, me, just like millions of other kids, can, I connected to that stuff on such a visceral molecular level. And right. I, I, to this day, I don't still don't quite understand it, but I do know that like, like I got into you know, the, the original run of the Eastman Laird comics, like there was okay. some color reprints that had been done by first comics in the late eighties. And so that was my first exposure to those, then the cartoon and then all, you know, the movie obviously and all that stuff. So, okay. but for me, there's like that stuff still to this day as kind of, you know, it still holds up for me. Like it still like rings a certain, like I can go through and read that stuff and and still feel like a certain, like I don't there and like yearn for that stuff to exist. 
again because they have it but i i do sit there and i do love how it still makes me feel to this day my relationship i like to, I like to talk with my friends a lot about my relationship with material because i'm constantly reevaluating albums i love or comics yeah. i love or movies i love stuff like that and doing like and because and, as i get older the movie or the the media the piece of thing that uh, that i'm talking about stays the same but I change. You right. Know? And so I'm, yeah. And so in, in reevaluating those, my relationship with a lot of that stuff, like there's some stuff that holds up, like, you know, 86 Transformers movie, like that blew my mind because <laughs> for so many reasons, because Transformers die, they say some cuss words, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, and the same thing in, in the turtles, like the turtles, like the turtles get hurt and yeah. bad things happen and it, it gets dark. Uh, but they always, you know, they always come out of it and that stuff sticks with me. And my, and I, as I reevaluate my relationship with that stuff, those themes still kind of come through and affect me today just as much as they did then. But I'm also like, well, you know, those things are also not that well-made. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what music was, was a very long-winded answer, but yeah. What music, um, yeah. man, I'm a grunge kid, you know, uh, I'm of that age. Like I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, when all that stuff hit, uh, started playing guitar around age 12, you know, I had wanted to play much earlier, but there was, you know, just some family about that happening. And then finally, you know, the, they acquiesced and let me get and got me a guitar. Who knows what kind of guitar player or musician I'd be if I'd started there. I have no idea because it's like, yeah, what I have glommed onto like hair metal. You know, would I have been like a nine? Would I have been a nine-year-old that's playing, you know, like rat? I have no idea. Oh man, <laughs> you, know? you could have, you could have been an eleven-year-old shredding with Steve Vai. Yeah, exactly. I, but but I, I I got a guitar and guitar lessons right as you know Pearl Jam, Nirvana. Yeah, yeah uh, and honestly, like uh, I was extremely saddened by his passing. But you know, like Screaming Trees was a huge one for me because uh, my my buddy Lee got me Sweet Oblivion for my birthday that year uh, that it came out. Yeah. You know, so like, so like I've been listening to Mark Lanigan's voice for over 30 years, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, like as a, you know, and, and he was such a, that band, that especially that album was such a huge formative thing to my, you know, especially my songwriting then um, because it didn't sound like everybody else, you know, Pearl Jam was, is, wasn't, is still a huge influence. Um, but before that, I remember, I do remember a lot of Casey Case in Top 40. Oh, okay. So I remember, like, I remember, yeah. Like, so, like, I'm a big, like, I love pop. So, like, I, I, I'm that guy that loves Phil Collins' Genesis. Like, uh, even though I love King Crimson, Tool, and stuff like that, like, yeah. I, I can't get into the Gabriel Genesis. I, I've tried. Really? But Phil Collins' Genesis. I know, it's weird, I know. Man. Phil Collins, as soon as Phil Collins starts saying, I'm in, I'm all in. So. What about Peter Gabriel's solo yeah. stuff? Like, the, the first three solo, love Scratch, it. Security? But, I I know it's so good. It's so good. You just I, can't I, put I the two together, though, huh? That, yeah, I don't know why. And you know what though? It's been a few years since I've tried. I probably should go back and revisit because every time, maybe I'm trying with the wrong album. We start with Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and uh, maybe I should start with another album. You yeah, know what I mean? you may want to start with like Selling England by the Pound. Okay, that's a great yeah. one. But I also I do love the Phil yeah. era also. Yeah. 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 So. And, you know, I think also it like has to do with like, I, you know, my parents didn't listen to a lot of like I, my musical tastes are, I would say probably like 95% my own mm -hmm. because the stuff that they like is generally not what I'm super into, but the, the, there was some stuff that stuck. Like, like I'm a big Neil Diamond fan to this day. Yes. My mom, you know? Yes. And it's like, I, I love seventies Elton John. I'm a huge you know fan of, 
you know, which who isn't really, exactly. but, uh, but stuff like, uh, um, Oak Ridge boys, just stuff like that. Like to this day still gets me. Um, cause I do remember like a lot of those Midwest, um, state fairs where seeing right Reba McIntyre, you know, yeah. Guds, you know, so it's like, there's stuff like that that has like a special place. So a lot of my, my childhood is with, uh, like Neil Diamond pop country from the eighties and a lot of Elvis. I was a big Elvis fan, Elvis and Roy Orbison, which, you know, oh, I love Roy. Diagram there is like barely, there's like, it's mostly a circle of, yes. you know, those two. <laughs> um, I just, I remember when Roy died, that was a, was wrecked for quite a while on that one. So. Yeah, my dad was the same way. He was a huge Roy Orbison fan. So, so all right. So you mentioned a couple bands, and I, I will plug my own podcast a little bit on my podcast, which I don't know. It may be the most meta thing I can do, but you can always go back. Mark Lanigan was one of my favorite episodes that I ever did. So he came on. We spoke for two hours, and he actually came on yeah. a second time. And uh, just to discuss his Christmas album for like 15, 20 minutes, that was, that was awesome. Oh, that's awesome. I will say, like, as someone who recently discovered your show through the Ken Andrews interview, I've, I have not gone through the back catalog. Yeah. So that's one of those things that I'm excited to. Well, then that's one of the things I was excited to talk to you is because you do such long form conversations. Oh, cool. You know, like, I always you know, get nervous about that. Something that, like, uh, now, as a listener, I want like if if it's less than an hour and a half, two hours, I'm sitting there going like, okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you also got to realize though the nature of my day job is I'm sitting here drawing or editing, you know, working on stuff like you know, noting other people. If I'm not drawing it myself, I'm draw- noting other people's drawings, you know. And so like right. I, stuff that occupies anything from four to eight hours of the day, depending on how much time I have to listen, is ideal, you know. So it's like okay. if I'm constantly having to find a new hour thing to listen to that drives me nuts like i love okay. uh, that's why i miss like old drive time radio like i, I grew up uh well you mentioned new jersey i went to college in new jersey and so so when i moved there stern was still king you know yes. but then i i got into uh i, I moved there right as ona had been brought down there from boston so i got into ona quickly so that was like between them and uh bennington uh, what was it ron and fez between them and ron and fez it, that was like eight hours of my day just set that oh, I'm just sitting there just listening to, you know, and then there was, I think it was Dr. Drew was on after running Fez, you know? So, I mean, like there was, yeah. I, I just, I, I knew every day, like after at three, from three to like 11, just, this is what's going on in, around while I'm doing all this other stuff. So one, if, now if you like uh 70s Elton John, you should check out the episode I did with BJ Cole. So he did a lot of the pedal. Okay. He did a lot of the pedal steel for Elton John back then. So. Oh, that's sick. Oh, yeah. that's so sick. Yeah. He's, BJ is awesome. That's one of those guys that not a whole lot of people know about, but I was super thrilled to, to have him on the podcast. No, that's like when I discovered that Leland Sklar was on, uh, sorry, I just slurred his name. Leland Sklar was on uh, YouTube because he dude played with Phil. Like he's Phil Collins and all that. Like he's, you know, played with other people. Yeah. Um, and I was just like sitting there, I'm like, yeah, dude, let me, yes, more of this guy, please. <laughs> yeah, oh, Leland's amazing. So, all right, so you mentioned going to college in New Jersey. So how did you end up getting in, into drawing comics? You know, how did how did you end up going from Kansas City to the Cubert uh, School, which I'm yeah. not a huge comic guy. Uh, I, I kind of sure. got out of it. I used to be a, a big comics guy, but, but I, that was like the late seventies, early eighties. And then sports and, and girls kind of took yeah. that part of my brain. So I, I, I saw Kubert <laughs> school and I thought of the video game, the old Kubert video game. So I guess that's not what it is. Very, yeah. Very fair. Very fair. 
Yeah. So I'll just start with me and then I'll end up with the keyword sports. Sure. Um, so I love my, you know, it's like my, my parents fatal mistake was buying me comic books, you know, as a kid, <laughs> mostly my dad, my dad was into comics when he was a kid, like he read. So this gives away this bit this gives away the, the, the later thing, which is my dad loved war comics as a kid. He loved like, so he loved Nick Fury and his Howling Commandos, you know, that stuff. And then Sergeant Rock. Sergeant Rock was drawn by a guy named Joe Kubert, okay. who in late seventies started his own school. Wow. So yeah, so I grew up with you know my dad. So my dad bought me. He didn't buy me Joe Kubert comics. I later found those on my own. Okay. In the late nineties or in the late in the eighties, there was like a Green Hornet comics revival and stuff like that. So he would buy I me that. He bought that. Me yeah. So that got me because um, my he bought me. Do you remember they sold those like three packs? Yeah. Eleven of like random comics yeah yeah sorry i'm burp, burping here oh, no worries that stuff may stay in though um that's totally fine <laughs> if you need the actual bur- audio of, of the burp i get happy to oblige um but uh so i remember getting a three pack that had transformers number one and then transformers number three which had the black costume spider-man oh um which so that was my first introduction to spider-man was him in the black costume so I didn't understand that he wore anything else for years because there was there was that and then and then a few months later somewhere around there I was the death of Craven storyline which is all Spider-Man in the black costume and ends with the hunter Craven killing himself at the end of the book you know oh, so I'm wow. like 7 8 you know this is heady stuff That's this pretty is also dark. The time when uh, um yeah, it's also time when Batman Dark Knight Returns had come out and Batman Death in the Family where they killed Robin, but yeah. they had a poll that you could call in to vote to see if Robin lived or died. Super dark shit. Oh, um, yeah. Anyways, but through those, in those, uh, I loved comics and then he immediately started to try the storyteller part of me, the kid who spent way too much time by himself. <laughs> so I started trying to make my own comics and, you know, especially being a fan of the Ninja Turtles, like I was making my own Ninja Turtles comics. I was, oh, wow. And then started trying to partner with friends and like, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you know, to make comics with each other, just like taking eight and a half by 11 pages, folding and stapling them, and then just drawing, here's page one, turn the page, here's page two, you know, which then led to in in high school, uh, well, in middle school, I started getting my mom to take me to comic conventions, and then she me off and then she would go do her thing for a few hours and then come back and get me okay and so i started just meeting our, uh, this was a time when that was okay yeah um and i'm better for i'm better off for it but it is definitely something that is frowned upon these days it, um, it really is i tried with my but, kids and uh i got yelled at oh i know right people i'm you know but i'm fortunate that i'm just kidding parents trusted me from a young age i <laughs> i think i have to put I, that in there they trust me yeah <laughs> gee well you gotta put the disclaimer I, exactly in, yeah. you can always just edit that yeah yeah <laughs> um and so I, I got to meet comics creators uh and and eventually started taking them my stuff and i was terrible i was like you know between the ages of 10 and you know just going to these shows but they were they were all very nice and they would get they would tell me what supplies i needed to buy they would tell me recommend things for me to work on like anatomy perspective all that stuff okay but all the whole time i'm seeing ads for the Kubert school in all these comics i'm buying you know because they were advertising and joe joe had a, a a very consistent and steady relationship with dc comics for most of his career so while he did other stuff a lot of his career was was for dc doing everything from sergeant rock to hawkman and you know stuff like that okay he's always seen your name and his sons are in the industry the adam and andy they draw comics they were on 
X-Men books in the early nineties. So their names were, so, so it's, it's in my brain, you know? Right. Um, but then I, I get, I get to, I get a guitar and I immediately start writing songs and I immediately, I immediately start trying to join bands and put bands together. And so like, I remember like the, my church, the church I went to the, there was a worship band that played there full of like mid, mid twenties to mid thirties people. I, am at 13, like barely know how to play guitar, but I'm like, I want to audition for this. And they let me, and I think, and my mom took me, and I think it was, I think everybody involved was just like, okay. <laughs> so I went in, I, you know, it's like, I show up for this audition and like, you know, I, I had no, I, anyways, I did it and they were like, okay, you know, Hey, we just thought we'd give you a shot. You know, you're not ready for what we're doing, but keep at it. And then within another year, though, I had started, I had started essentially, it was coming together. And so I was basically a founding member of another worship band that started at that church. Oh, cool. And so, but by then I was, I was a year and a half into playing guitar, but I had gotten to a very deep point. It's not like I was a prodigy or anything. I just had, I worked, I just worked and worked and worked and worked, you know, I played every day for hours. Drew, drew every day for hours, you know, so all this is happening simultaneously. And then I got into that worship band and we very quickly, we went from playing to just our church to playing at a multiple churches. So I'm playing in front of like, I'm 14, 15, something like that, playing in front of hundreds of people Wednesdays and S Sundays, you know what I mean? Wow. Like each night. And, and, and that is a very hard drug to kick, <laughs> you know, bet. Yeah. like, especially at that age, but also I'm the youngest guy in the band because I'm playing with people who uh, the next oldest person was the singer and he was like 1920 and everybody else was in their mid to late twenties, you know? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, and it's like, we're playing for three, 400 people at, at a clip. Um, and then anyways, and then that banded because of literally because of church politics. Um, oh, and gosh. it got, it, it basically set me on a path of like, I'm doing it myself from now on. This is going to be my band, my songs. So I wrote, just wrote dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of songs. Oh, but at the same time, I'm drawing comic book pages. I'm writing my own stories. Like, and basically I, I have a bedroom on the, the second floor of my parents' house, but I was essentially in the basement all the time because that's where we kept it, my art supplies, stuff like that. So I'm in the basement listening to Depeche Mode, <laughs> listening to Anthrax, <laughs> listening to The Cure, listening to Pantera. You wow. <laughs> everything. You listen to everything. So like, yeah, everything, dude, everything. Um, you know, and, and then eventually put together what became my high school band, you know, and, and, and I, I was so, I was, was so self-motivated that like found a recording studio, did a demo, got a couple of gigs like at the high school doing stuff because of that. And then wow. put a, basically got a different drummer then immediately booked more studio time. So we recorded the, our first album in like January of 96. Then we recorded our second album in November of 96. And then, you know, wow. just kind of, yeah, we, and, and we're doing stuff like first album, we, we made ourselves set, like we duplicated on ourselves. By the time we did the second album, uh, I had learned about um, CD manufacturing. And so we raised the money um, through donations from family members and just kind of working our shitty pizza hut jobs because we <laughs> all had jobs by this point. And most of us worked at, and all three of the four of us worked at pizza hut. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so it was always, they could always tell when we were ditching out to go to band practice because mysteriously, all three of us would not show up to work. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. 
Hey guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast. But I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot and loved them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was Jailbait. Wait, Jailbird. The design I chose was Jailbird. I might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com. Seriously, like the one person who was scheduled would call out, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so that, that album came out on CD and stuff like, and learned a lot through that process of all those processes. But all at the same time, I'm still drawing comics pages. So I probably drew, wrote and drew hundreds of pages of, uh, you know, my own stories. Like there was one massive story that I was working on that I got a hundred show pages into. And then there's a couple other stories that I got dozens and dozons. So it all adds wow. up to a couple other pages of time, you know, and all this while going to high school and, not really enjoying that at all, but like I had to deal with my parents as long as I got a three, five, they didn't fuck with me. So nice. I made sure that I, I, and also like back then, I don't know how it was, but back then school wasn't very hard. So <laughs> <laughs> like for me, it wasn't anyways. <laughs> uh, again, I'm not a genius. I'm not smart at all. I just, I think I learned how to game the system in a fairly, in a way that worked for me and that I, you know, hey, <laughs> but it worked for um, you. Yeah. And so I had no intention of going to college, but I wanted to focus on music and I knew I could make art. And I knew at that age, I knew at that age of like 16, 17 college will do nothing for either of these disciplines. All they will do is just waste time, you know? And, um, that band broke up and spent another year or so a year or two trying to figure out like, okay, putting, trying to put another band together, trying to make other things happen. And then it just all, it just got to a place that was just like emotionally and creatively frustrating. And I said, you know what? I've been looking at the school thing the wrong way. I need to find the place where I can learn how to work. And because I knew I had the ethic, I knew I had the drive, but I was working in warehouses by this point and I didn't have time to get better. Right. So I realized that like, I, and that's, I went back to and started looking at schools again. I started looking at all these art institutes, all these you know various colleges and comics programs are so common now, but back then there was next to nothing. Oh yeah. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, so I remember the Kubert school and, and uh, I, Basically did my research, um, talked, you know, talked to the admissions people, got the packets sent, you know, and then realized I've had, uh, and, and I started putting together a portfolio. Like I, I was a couple of years out of high school at this point, you know, cause I didn't go to, since I didn't go to college right after I, I was graduated in 97 and I graduated from high school early. I was hated high school early. Wow. I did really work release where I got, a, I graduated in January and was like, see y'all and basically didn't see anybody again until may for graduation wow. you know which in hindsight was stupid because then i had to work 30 hours a week whereas if i'd done like half days we'll just go to school for like two days i could have just fucked off the rest of the day yeah but, you know it's, it's, it always that, sounds i was better so angry at having <laughs> yeah i was so angry at having to to be in school at all because i and i still think it's i'm you know i'm one of those i just gave a talk at a panel the other day at this convention where i was like i'm sorry parents but school was bullshit <laughs> like, it really is <laughs> you know and it's useful in some ways, but I'm just, I, I just am not of the opinion that for our type of people who are creative, I'm of the opinion that mentorship is useful. School yes. is not. 
you know? Yeah. And, and anyways, and that's kind of what I got out of the Cuban school. And I finally decided to go to school, sold my parents on it, you know, and they were willing to help me out. And so I finally went and learned, basically spent three years just doing nothing but working, nothing but like just class was five, uh, five classes, 10 classes a week from eight to three. You know, it was very structured, like it was structured like high school, but it was two classes a day, 10 assignments a week. But because it was because of that structure, you, none of the teachers really purposely coordinated with each other because they wanted you to feel like it was the real world where you have all these deadlines and you're trying to survive. Wow. Because also they're, they are working teachers who are also like, this isn't their full-time job. Like a lot of colleges, you have full-time professors who haven't actually been in the real world in a while. These are teachers who are in the real comics and illustration world. So they're giving you experience based on their experience. You know? Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So I spent three years with essentially 10 deadlines about every two to three weeks, oh my you know, God. and it's like, you know, and, and I'm, I'm making it sound super, it is super intense. I mean, you probably made it sound more intense than it was, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. It was also, it was, it was some of the best and worst experiences, you know, and I'm sure everybody's college is ups and downs like that because they're like, you learn how to navigate the world in a certain way. But I also learned that that was college, that college, especially like, I love it. And I recommend every, everyone who is interested in comics to check it out and see if it's right for them. Mm -hmm. But I also know that I put a lot into it and not everybody is willing to do that with their experience in college, you know? And th that was one of those things where like, I, I to this day treat most things like this is like, you get out of it. I got this advice from emailing someone before I went to college, like somebody who had gone there and graduated. I was like, Hey, you know, I'm just trying to scope out if this is for me. And this is like 97, or no, this is like 98, 99, you know? So I just was tracking people down and digging and basically getting their emails from other people who were like, you know, tell them I sent you that kind of yeah. thing. No social media to find people easily at all. Exactly. But I, I, I emailed people, I emailed probably a dozen people and maybe only one or two got back to me. But one of them that did was a guy named Brandon. And he he wrote back, he's like, Hey, uh, good luck with the school. If you decide to go, the only best thing I can tell you is you get out of what you put into it. And that set me on such a good path. Like yeah. it set me, like I still went through some lows, but to this day, that piece of advice, like 25, 20, almost 25 years later is like still a huge core of how I move forward with stuff. You know, wow. it's like, my relationship with working on Archer is it's like, I ultimately I get out of it what I put into it. If I am not putting in that much into it, then it's not going to be that beneficial for me. You know, That's my relationship. Yeah. And my relationship with my friends, my, you know, my girlfriend, stuff like that. It's like, it's like, if I'm not trying, then it's not going to give me anything back. I can't exactly. just expect something without having put forth any effort and this is all a very long answer for me <laughs> <laughs> no that's cool that's cool i realized i've been talking like 50 hours about how i got into college but um well yeah. I've, I've got a question about this what's the curriculum like what kind of classes do you take at cuba at comic book college yeah exactly <laughs> i'll let you say so, that yeah <laughs> um, no, I call, I call it kind of a college to, to lay people that, cause it's like, it's very, well, it's the Joe Kubert school. And then, you know, and that's, it's, it's not that hard to explain. It is a little bit for, you know, people who are more like more used to like regular, more easily explainable jobs, especially, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, a place like, like Atlanta where it's a lot of film and tech people. So you get like film people who they understand what Cal arts is, or you get tech people who understand what uh, Georgia tech is, mm -hmm. but they don't always understand what a little trade school in New Jersey is about, you know? Right. 
crap, I just lost the thread. What was your question? What kind of classes do you take? What are the uh, assignments oh, classes, that you're right, getting? Yeah. So sequential art, which is which is what con- another term from comic books, but sequential art is like pictures in a in an order that tell a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you take a sequential art class where you're making comic book pages. So you're either getting scripts uh, and or pitching scripts and then and then drawing them. So they'll give you like you know here's three pages of an X Men script, draw that, and then you get noted on like you know you, you do reviews, you do peer reviews where you put all the stuff up on the wall. Yeah, I know that. When you kind of break each other down, you know yeah. sometimes it happened negatively, but largely it was a very positive experience. Um, and that, but then also you get one on one teachers where they go through and note stuff. But then you're also taking like um, this is back in the late '90s, so they're like airbrushing is still a thing. So there was an airbrushing class, and oh, then wow. we had life drawing, which is where we're drawing from like nude models. You know, and then we had a, uh, there was a design class, but I think it was called something else. And then we had various painting classes. Yeah. So that uh, okay. there was the best, the, the reason I chose to go there and the reason I met any person who's interested in the visual arts, explore that school or so, there's other schools more like it now is because I didn't have to sit there and take any bullshit math, science or history classes that have no application towards what I'm doing. Yeah. The most, I was just thinking about this the other day, like I have not used anything beyond addition and subtraction uh, <laughs> and a little bit of division. So why the fuck did I need algebra? <laughs> I did that, you know. <laughs> and I did. I, I will say, I did well in math, not because I'm good at math. I did well in math because I had a good teacher. But I, I, I think that that's a testament to his ability to teach, and not math being a that sort of math being a useful function for a human who doesn't want to go into something else. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I will say, you know, it's like as a writer, uh, you know, my English class was a little bit. My English class was great because I learned how to come up with an idea and execute it in the hour before class. <laughs> so I learned how to think very quickly and then write the paper that was due. <laughs> so I don't know that I learned anything from English class because everything I've learned about writing has all been after that, like, you know, three-act structure and hero's journey. And, you know, I'm still, ter- I'm still terrible at grammar, but like, you know, I, I, I will say the best, best thing I learned from my creative writing class and then my English class was getting an assignment, fucking off doing music and comic stuff in my spare time, and then having to turn in something and being like, oh, fuck, it's 7 a.m. and I'm on the bus, scribble, yeah. scribble, you know. <laughs> Performing under pressure. Yeah, 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 which, you know, that's hence performance anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so those, it was very much just all art classes, which is what I loved about it. It was just all drawing and all problems to do, problems solved to do with drawing and how to approach different things. And so what I will say is a lot of, a lot of people fixate on style. I did not. I, well, I did, but in a different I went in with the mindset and I didn't really talk about it super actively until after I'd done it a couple of times. So it really kind of threw a lot of my fellow students and my teachers, but I went in with the mindset that I was going to follow my muse and change things up every, every, every few. So every semester I switched the style, I switched my style oh, wow. sometimes multiple times a semester. But I, if you look at my work from those three years of school, it's like, you see, a gamut of things going on there's not maybe there's a through line in that it looks like me i have no idea i don't think it's that i mean i know i know i know it's me so i can't say right but i tried everything from like expressionist you know uh, things to blocky cube not cubist but kind of more um 
you know, angular, lots of dark blacks, like, or just, I did this one thing where for a while where I was just like dropping out lines like crazy. So you get these, you could tell it's a figure, but it's missing a lot of internal details. So it's okay. really just very silhouette heavy. Oh, cool. You know, just, I, I know it's hard to explain over an audio thing, but you know, so, but I, and then I did stuff that was realistic. I did stuff that was very comic booky realism, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, I, I came out of it with a, I know I have a better grasp on what I can do rather than just having focused on one surface style and honed that. Yeah. But the people who did that, the people who focused, focused on a surface style and honed that got work much faster. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it it did take me a while out of school to kind of like, you know, kind of come up with, get back to a style that was mine. So uh, it, it did help me kind of like, it prepared me to, to be malleable, especially for when I later went to Floyd County and working on Archer. But it, it also, it made people wary as to what they were going to get, you know? Uh-huh. And I think that's an interesting problem to have. I came as not a, a tool that they could use. I came as a toolbox that they could choose from. And a lot of people when they're hiring don't like to think that way. And I get it because I've, I've been in a position now for the last 10 years where I've had to hire a bunch of people. And if you don't know what you're going to get, it may, it makes it harder to choose that person. Uh-huh. So, you know, and it's, it's a double-edged sword. And I'm always, because of my experience with that, I'm always mindful of that when I'm looking at people. You know? Okay. Were you still playing music at the Cubert School or did you kind of put that aside for the time being? So that's, that's interesting. Um, the, the band broke up. Uh, then I took a year to woodshed because I was like, oh, I'm going to be the shittiest artist at the school. It's, it's comic college. It's going to be there. Everyone's going to be so much better than me. Yeah. And I got there and it was a mix. It was a mix of people who were excellent and a mix of people who had never drawn comics in their life, but wanted to, wanted to, you know, wow. so it was, it was interesting. Uh, first year and a half, I would say I wasn't really doing much. I was still playing guitar a little bit. Then, um, I went through some heartbreak in the summer of like my second and third year. Um, so then I, that ended up necessitating, I mean, as is with all songwriters, an album of heartbreak songs came out of that, you know? Yeah. And also I borrowed a buddy's four track and was relearning because in high school I had borrowed another buddy's four track and had learned how to multi-track myself. And so I learned how to play, um, along with myself so that when we went into the studio, like I was able to double everything. I had written all these melody lines and stuff like that, rather than being a 16 year old and having to figure out what happens in the studio. I went in knowing all of my parts forwards and backwards. And so, and then, you know, cut to, I'm 20, 21 in college, you know, living in a basement, you know, apartment or whatever, and like feeling the pangs of heartbreak. And so I just started writing songs and I started just, and I borrowed a buddy's for a different buddy's sport track and <laughs> was, was relearning how to use that. And that got the, the bug back in me for playing. And then that summer, between second and third year, because this school goes by years rather than, you know, it's not freshman, it's just, it's a three-year school. So okay. somewhere between second and third year, reconnected with the bass player from my high school band. And like, he and I literally started trading tapes because I had a, a boom box that I could plug my guitar into the eighth inch uh, microphone jack. I had found an <laughs> adapter that I could plug in so I could record. And I still had a couple pedals so I could shittily record into this track thing he had a four track so he could take that tape and then dump it into a four track. And then we would just send the tapes back because the boom box had dual cassettes. I could play his and record onto another one. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, you know, and the shitty thing is, is I had, a, I had a goddamn Mac. I should have been learning 
to do like <laughs> like digital audio stuff yeah. then but was you know at 20 and like you know in at 20 and, uh, and 19 or no, i was 21 and yeah in the year 2000 stuff like that i still thought old school like that yeah. so still t- it took a few years <laughs> it wasn't until after i got out of college and got uh, a credit card that i bought pro tools so, <laughs> you know but, but like yeah so that got me back into it so that basically i got through my third year was super burnt out and then um went moved back to kansas city and got into a band with a couple of other people with that basis and a, and a couple other people and just kind of like have been you know spent the next 10 years after that up, up until i moved to atlanta just kind of meandering in and out of things like while I was bouncer at a bar, worked at a liquor store, loaded trucks, you know, uh, worked at a pizza hut again, <laughs> like that. all of that, like while doing music, but also trying to get a comic book career going as well, which finally started in, in earnest, um, after a, a lot of really kind of hustling and stuff like that, my first comic book came out in 2007 and then just kind of never looked back after that. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so you do, are, are you doing them independently that, how does that, process work how do you get a comic out it's different it's different for everybody um but what i i met uh, a guy named dennis hopeless um he's uh he he was he's a local uh kc native he uh he worked at a comic shop at the time okay and so he and i met and just started talking ideas and then basically we just started coming up with pitches and we would just pitch all these companies and they would say no um but generally the way getting a comic book made works is there's a couple different ways you make one and then you get send it to people or get people to buy it. And then somebody comes along and says, Oh, we want you to do that for us, but we'll actually pay you. Oh, you know, okay. or if you're an artist who doesn't write, you just want to work on like, you know, you're sending, you're doing samples. Okay. So you're doing, here's six pages of Spider-Man. Here's six pages of Batman, whatever. And you're sending them to editors or you're going to comic book conventions and meeting editors and stuff like that. And basically just trying to be someone that they want to hire. Okay. You know, so yeah, but I would say the the best to, to it's comics is a lot like music. The best way to get work doing more of it is to do as much of it you can for to show people that you are capable of doing it. Yeah, and that you're that you improve. You know, bands don't just like make go to labels and say, "Hey, we're a band. You should sign us." They make an album that the label or you know the audience or whatever finds. Yeah, or you know, or to get, or that they send to a label or send to whatever you know, and comic books works the, the works very similarly. You know, there's a lot of difference between music, the music industry, and comics, but there's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. So. so, how did you go from making your own comics to storyboarding for like Vampire Diaries and Archer and other shows? Yeah, yeah. And, so, and um, what is the different? What is what does a storyboard artist do that's different from a comic book artist or an animator? Because I don't know the difference. Sure, no, that's okay. Um, you probably have to remind me of a couple of these questions because I'll probably ramble as I. <laughs> yeah, as I'm sorry. I, can, I, I throw but, you like three questions at once. I, I apologize for that. No, if if I had a better brain, it would hold on to all of them at once, <laughs> and then I could just take off the answers. But I, I tend to. As you've heard and your audience is probably uh, uh, inured to at this point, I talk a lot and then I kind of go down these paths. That's what this podcast um, is all about, man. Yeah. (laughs) So how I got into it was uh, I had no intention of of working in TV or anything like that. Had been offered storyboard but didn't really it wasn't my thing. I I just was like, no, TV is not what I want to be in. I want to be I'm a comic book artist. I want to be in comics. And then I became a fan of Frisky Dingo 
which was uh, created by Adam Reed and Matt Thompson, the guys who later did Archer. But they're, they're also the guys who created, uh, who did C-Lab 2021. Oh, for okay. Network, or, yeah, for, for Adult Swim. So Frisky Dingo was, is kind of that, it has a, for those who don't know, it's uh, it's a weird like 10 to 15 minute show. Um, there's like two seasons. But I became a fan of that and just ate that up while it was on. And then it it got canceled or ended just ended. I don't remember which when when how that happened. But then saw announcement, you know, in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, that Archer was coming, and it was from the same people who made Frisky Dingo. And I'm like, well, I was all in from the word go. <laughs> but then I watched you watch that pilot, and I just fucking died laughing it's super smart i had to google you know google existed fortunately at this point but <laughs> i had to google several jokes to find out why they were funny you know and i loved that it wasn't cerebral it wasn't yeah it wasn't cerebral in like a, in a in a talking down to me away it was cerebral in a like this is really fucking funny and so i just fell in love with it and eventually around the time um season two came out i found the art director uh neil holman online on Twitter, Twitter had happened in 2007. So, you know, started using Twitter um, and networking with people. And, and I was already networking with uh, other creators and stuff like that. But I started following Neil and talking to him. And then eventually 2010, 2011-ish, yeah, late 2011, while they were making season three, they put out a call to that they wanted to hire storyboard artists, but they wanted people in Atlanta or, or Georgia residents, you know? And, okay. and I just was like, I literally just replied to him, oh, fuck, I wish I could apply for that. And he messaged me and said, hey, man, let's see what we can do. So I sent him a bunch wow. of my comic book work. And he was aware of some of it, but I sent him some stuff that was newer that he hadn't seen. And so I, I ended up testing for them. And um, they ended up hiring me for part-time work from Kansas City on season three. Wow. Which then, uh, so that, that was kind of like a trial process. Then they also were new to really doing that. They hadn't really done that before. So they were kind of taking a chance which I, I, to this day, I'm super grateful for. And then uh, uh, at the end of season three, he said, you know, hey, we know you've got this comics career, but we'd love to have you done here full time. So, you know, let us know what you want to do, but you need to be here by this point if you're going to be here, you know? Wow, <laughs> um, oh, man. Yeah, so so we worked it out and I, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to try, I'm going to give this a shot. And so I, I moved down to Atlanta, Georgia about 10 years ago, as of about right now, it was around the, uh, March I get a little fuzzy. I'd have to actually look, but sometime end of March, between end of March, middle of May of 2012, I attached a, a U-Haul to my um, shitty 93 GMC Jimmy and then <laughs> drove the inner 800 miles. Um, and yeah. And just fortunately have been, I've been fortunate that, you know, through, through, well, I'm working on season 13 of Archer right now. I, I, after, after hit monkey, we're kind of waiting to see what happens with future of that. If we're going to get more season. Yeah. So they're like, you hop on an archer for a little bit and i found it a little bit uh um serendipitous that i started on season three and i'm back on season 13 and it's been 10 years and all this other stuff you know it's like i know it's just math which i talked earlier yes. about my struggles with but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I i do i i do appreciate the symmetry there that i have at this point found myself kind of back full circle you know, helping out on the show and training people on the show that I started out on, you know? That's right, so awesome. Yeah. But anyways, long-winded, that's how I got into Archer. And then how I got into Vampire Diaries is, I mean, the best way to get into Pit Atlanta is just to talk to people and meet strangers. And I was at a bar. A girl came up to bum a cigarette. I smoked at the time, so don't smoke, kids. Um, I smoked <laughs> it and uh, under a cigarette, loaned. <laughs> um, I gave her a cigarette. 
and started talking about what we do. And I was like, oh, well, I'm a storyboarder. And she's like, oh, I work on Vampire Diaries. And I'm like, oh, I love that show. I'm a big fan. She's like, she looked at me. She's like, what, really? You know, because it wasn't really a, a known as a dude show. But I, I, I love vampires, you know, sparkly or not. And so I, uh, uh, and that, then told her what I did. is like, well, I'm a storyboard artist. And like her and her friend that were there, both worked on the show and they're like, Oh fuck, we need, we need storyboard artists. Like we're dying for storyboard artists. Wow. So uh, they tried to get, yeah. And this was in the middle of season five, so tried to get me on season five. She tried, the producer did, didn't quite work out timing wise, but they got me on board for season six. So I ended up storyboarding season six, seven and eight, the last three seasons. Yeah. And, and they're wonderful to work with such nice people. And I did all this on top of working a full-time 40 hour, 40 to 50 hour week on Archer. Oh so I was just doing all this in my spare time. And then that rolled into the same production company that made Vampire Diaries did the pitch pilot for Black Lightning. So that rolled into me working on that. And even though that production company didn't end up making the actual show, the show creator, Salim, liked me. So he kept me on for season one. And so I ended up storyboarding, um, because I know I was the only storyboard artist, but they may be other people, but I ended up boarding sections of, I think, eight or nine out of the 13 episodes, something like that. So, So yeah, and so... Yeah. What what is a storyboard artist? What what are you actually doing? So two two different uh, kind of similar jobs for live action animation, but difference in the sense of scope. So with animation, um, both start the same. You get the script and you read through, and then you start visualizing it. So visualizing it in this and this happens. This is the same process for comic books too. You get the script and you start breaking it down into moments. The comic book script is generally broken down for you by the writer. Um, you know, panel one, this happens, they're saying this. Panel two, this happens, they're saying this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Animation, uh, animation scripts and live action scripts look the same. The way they're structured inside what they say can be a little different because animation needs to be a little bit more specific than live action. But but the role of storyboards in animation is it is the visual blueprint for how they will make the show. So the script is the blueprint for the story. The storyboards are the visual blueprint for what the final thing is going to be. So I I like to say a lot of time, a script is not a comic book. A script is not a TV show. A script is not a movie. It is a document. And I've heard other smarter people refer to it as it's essentially a work order. So it is telling you what you need to do and the order in in which you need to do it in order to have this thing called a movie or a tv show okay and so you're taking that and and i i do these talks every once in a while and i've started labeling them like i labeled one of them the script is a problem because it is it presents the script is a is a solution for how to tell a story it is not a solution for how to visually tell that story often more often than not they present problems so as as a storyboard artist going in and going okay this person's talking but then they suddenly need to be talking to this person. But in the scene before they were in different rooms, I need to have them come in together and figure that out. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. those are, that's a problem that I then have to visually solve. Sometimes it's easy as cutting. And sometimes you just have to, sometimes you can show them, you know, walking up to each other, you know, and those, so you have to figure out those problems. Okay. Storyboarding and, and animation, you storyboard every moment in live action. Generally they only really hire you to storyboard the stuff that's complex. Okay. So in animation, everything that you see on screen has a storyboard for it. Okay. In live action, most of the stuff you see don't have a storyboard for it. Uh-huh. Like a Marvel movie, yes. You know what I mean? Like a big movie, a big action movie that has a lot of like, you know, CG and stuff like that. 
will have, even if they don't call it, this is a gripe area I have, they've gotten away <laughs> from calling it storyboards. And a lot of times now they call it previews. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's still storyboarding, those fuckers. Um, but still, <laughs> it's, yeah, this is probably why I'll never get work for like, you know, Marvel or Disney or whatever. Like, well, I work for Disney, technically, but I'll never get work on big movies like that because I consider this, it's all storyboarding. Just because you're paying some guy in 3D to do it, doesn't mean he's not he's still a storyboard artist he's yeah. still helping you tell the story you know makes sense <laughs> um yeah but anyways but like so like on vampire diaries that's a 45 minute so 45 to 50 minute script you know yeah so but they don't need storyboards for two people in a room talking and that's largely what that show was you know so because they can set up a camera pointed at one actor while they're doing their lines then do the reverse setup, you know, or well, more realistically, do your master, then do your overs. So it's like do your master where you've got the wide of them talking, get your coverage, then you go over for one, and then you go over for the other person. Okay. Am I saying things that you understand? Yes. Okay, just want to make sure. I, I realize I'm like, wait a minute, I don't want to get too into the weeds on saying overs and masters unless, so we, like, unless you're with me. So for for people who can't actually see you, you 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 know overs, you you that's an angle from one yeah. person, and then the other side so, for the other person. Yeah, so the way uh, the way easy way to explain it that everyone I think will understand is the friends setup. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a, a wide view at the beginning of every show of you know of the scene of six people in the living room. Yeah. Then from then after the after that's called your master, and then after that you have all these close ups or two shots where it's like if it's Joey and Chandler, that's a two shot. If it's the camera is over Rachel's shoulder at. Monica, that's a reverse, you know, like you have, and then you can have close-ups and any number of shots within there, okay. but that's, that's your coverage. So it's like your masters, you're getting like the big, uh, broad strokes of the scene. Then you get to go in for coverage and do everybody's lines, their jokes, their reactions, stuff like that. Yeah. Unless something, unless there is mechanically something in the scene that is super complex, you don't generally need to storyboard that out. You just need to basically rehearse it with your actors and, and understand the point of what they're trying to get across and make sure that they feel good about their moment, you know? Okay. But what I got hired to do with Vampire Diaries was most people don't realize that a, a huge function of storyboards is also budget. Yeah. And what it does is it tells the people in production the scope of how much money they need to spend to make that happen. <laughs> you know, I appreciate you going into some de- yeah. detail about what it is yeah, and how yeah. it works. Were you writing music still at this point or did you just not have any time? Um, so by the time I, 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 throughout the 2000s, I was in and out of bands. Um, and then that stuff just kind of like slowly fell apart towards the end of the, of the aughts. And then around 2010, 2011, I was mostly just focused on making comics. Wasn't making a lot. Um, but well, I, I had got the iPad had come out. And so garage band on the iPad game changer. So I had started, I had gotten in the 2000s, I had bought pro tools, learned how to use that. And then was and we had gotten to a place with that we were running a small studio and and right as we were about to start like really kind of trying taking on clients, the studio got damaged in with some inclement weather. Uh-huh. Insurance wouldn't cover it, and so it kind of like made everything fall apart, you know. And it kind of set me on and weirdly it's what set me on this path. So I decided to you know it's like I've really focused on comics and not making that happen. But then. Uh, you know, the, the iPad, the iPad one came out and GarageBand and all that. And then GarageBand on your phones and everything. So I started making music again, like 
because it was fascinating that I it had in my hand, you know, something that was just as good as the Mac G4 Mac and Pro Tools that I had been running a decade previously. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, shit. That's what I mean. You know, I had all yeah. the G4 and, too. And so, Love yeah, that thing. So I was teaching myself how to do that, and not really doing, not really doing a whole lot, but just demoing some stuff here and there. And by side, my, I, I don't know how normal this is for every other musician, but I, my process of writing is I come up with hundreds and hundreds of ideas and then I pick the ones that I feel like are the strongest. So I don't sit there and write a song to finish. I come up with like riffs and ideas. Okay. Well, I do write songs to finish, but the times that I write a song from start to finish versus the hundreds of riffs that it took to get there <laughs> is usually, you know, so I just was collecting ideas and then, uh, and so the storyboarding kind of my life storyboarding, making some comics. So I, I, I was still making comics full time when I took on the storyboarding gig. Um, and then the storyboarding kind of by, by taking on Vampire Diaries and all that, it kind of ate all of my free time away bet. for a few years. And then uh, I had a, I was in the middle of, I had just gotten back into making some music, you know, again, due to heartbreak at the end of 2015, when I had kind of a traumatic life event where a tree fell on top of the house I was staying in and I was in it and trapped under the tree while that happened. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. Long story, very, you know, as short as I can make it, but like basically I was watching, I was watching a movie, heard what sounded like a shotgun go off and I look up as the whole world falls in on me. Um, a Basically That's... a tree had, a, a tree had come loose from its roots um, because it had been raining so much and fell from the backyard to the head, but the front yard, it caught the corner of the house that my bedroom was on and trapped me under. And we're talking a large tree. It would take two of me to wrap my arms around it. Whoa. Fortunately, it fell in such a way that it didn't crush me. It just pinned me between me and my bed. And it laid at such an angle that I was like, you know, um, God. it took him a few hours to get me out. And yeah, no, I, fortunately the only, the only damage I have, I, everyone that I was not like, you know, made into mashed potatoes, including yeah. myself. Um, yeah. but fortunately the, yeah, the only damage I really have is because of the way I was pinned. I have some residual damage. So my elbow, you know, it hurts a lot, you know, still, and then just PTSD from something like that happening, you know, no kidding. Um, but that that event kind of spiraling into a couple of other life events led to me writing an album um, in 2016 called A Girl, A Tree, A Dream. And it's about like that sequence of things. I always say it's like the joke is I fell for a girl, a tree fell on me, and then I fell out of my mind because um, making <laughs> writing in after, after the tree thing, I basically was in such a bad mental state that I hallucinated that for about a month and a half that nothing that was happening to me was real. And wow. it, you know what I mean? So I, I thought for a long, a few weeks that like, and I, I was, I spent those few weeks trying to get my life back to normal as fast as possible because I didn't believe I was still alive, you know? Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. wild. It was, it was wild. It was, my brain was doing some wacky stuff. And I finally came out of it, you know, and, and faked my way through a lot of very convincing human interactions in that time, which was a little scary upon ret retrospect retrospection. It's a little scary that I was able to not, uh, hide it that well, but that um, put me, yeah. And so I started writing these songs and eventually I just, and in order to deal with that trauma of like the, the relationship stuff and then the, the tree events and then the mental break after that, I wrote that album. And that was just such a, a, a floodgate. It opened the floodgates of me just continuing to like, okay, I'm back in, I'm making music. I am back yeah. in, you know, and, and making time for it. And, and so, I mean, it, it's, 
<laughs> then you know like then it's like well why didn't you put out another i put that album out in 2016 and now here we are in 2022 and i just now put out like a second you know ep of yeah. music it's like what took so long <laughs> well i wrote hundreds of other songs to get to the ones that i wanted to put out <laughs> all right well I, yeah yeah i was listening to a girl a tree in a dream and the first question i had was the title so i i didn't even i don't even have to ask that one anymore but i think oh yeah 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 yeah. i really do like all the way to hell that is just a cool song i mean it starts off really aggressive um, then it just mellows out yeah and then it goes all aggro again it's great I think you'll appreciate both the story and the joke behind that one. All the way to hell is me trapped under the tree. So that's the story. But the joke is, um, I was, I was watching a lot of 30 rock and the joke is when Jack Donaghy is having a heart attack, he's going like, write it, Donaghy, write it all the way to hell. So that's, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it was me like trying to make light of in my head. It's me having a little in joke for myself about this very severe thing, you know? Well, the whole, the whole album is pretty heavy and dense. Until be in love. I see you across the room, sipping gin and giving me the eye. A drink or two, we start to move. You know, what? Th- you know, thank you. You're like the first person to ever bring this up. <laughs> <laughs> what was, what uh, happened you there? Noticed, you noticed that, huh? Yeah. Um, so I started that song about someone and finished it about someone else. Oh, you know, does that okay. make sense? Yeah. So the chorus, "Run it, we are so far from being in love, running so hard from being in love, was about the, you know, the girl, you know, from A Girl Tree Dream. Yeah. But the verses ended up being about someone who helped me get over all of that, you know? So it's like, I had met someone in kind of that relationship. And while that relationship was not very long, it was very like rewarding in that sense. And that it let me know that I was like, it. I knew that. And I left the chorus because I also knew that relationship wouldn't last. <laughs> it was very much a transitional thing. For both of us, you know? And so that, but it was, it was kind of like my way forward. And I didn't really have, at, you know, it was the only way I knew at the time to bridge that gap of like, cause especially after the fucking bullshit, like heaviness that it, emotional heaviness that his life goes on. I'm here alone and I want to Which 
which is like sitting there saying like, this is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not who I am. This is not what I wanted to be, but life keeps going. You know, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. I have that, yeah, at least unless I'm remembering it wrong, I could be forgetting my own track <laughs> listing, but, <laughs> you know, be in love and be in love also when you just like, uh, I had come up with the, that, that baseline kind of like, you know, and it felt like a, it felt like a yacht Rocky, like kind of thing. Yep. And, yeah, and so and plus when Sam, um, who who based Sam uh, Hawk or Sam, well, he's not named Hawk. Sam Hoskins, he mixed that album, but he also played drums. He produced it and played drums and bass. I, I played bass on that song, but he played drums okay. on it. And he put uh, the Hammond over that, doing that little organ stuff. And yeah. I was just like, ah, oh, fuck yeah, this is this is great. But it definitely was my mind that this is my literal mental shift in where I'm at now because that song didn't get finished until we were recording it which was about six months after I had written all the others. So my life had gone uh, through a bunch of stuff, you know? So I was, it was kind of that bridge into like, here's the next the beginning of the next phase okay. and a palate cleanser for all of the, you know, cause like, like track two, let's get drunk is literally about me just like drinking myself into a stupor all the time, you know? And all that stuff. Yeah. So it's like the album has, it's like the album, like for being a pop rock album, it's, you know, it's got all these darker themes going on. And that one, while it's not the most positive, happy love song, cause it's an anti love song. <laughs> it is a, it's okay. Like we're moving on, we're moving through kind of thing. At least for me, it was. So, Did you play any of this stuff live at all at that time? I have never, I have never done any of that album live at all. The first wow. uh, and the first live show I've done for any of my solo stuff just happened last night. So. Uh, yeah, I was going to mention that. But... <laughs> but but we didn't even do anything off of that album. I, I don't know why. It didn't occur to me. I was like, you know what? This probably would have been easier instead of having these dudes learn four new, like, because they learned the five songs off the new EP plus four new ones for an EP I'm putting out this summer. Oh, cool. All of which have a lot of, comp- have hard time rhythms and stuff like that because I write a lot of stuff in odd times. I'm like, why didn't I have them learn songs from the album that are much that that because that album's uh-huh. mostly four four three four like it's a much simpler. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't even occur to me. It just oh. didn't occur to me, and I don't know why. Like I'm like, am I okay? Clearly, I harder, not smarter. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, same same here. Yeah, so, yeah. All right. There's a six year gap between albums, but yeah. the next album is actually Guitarscapes, which is yes. really interesting. That's it's what four tracks, I believe, right? And it's kind of stream of conscious, improvisational, yes. and yeah. the songs are much more sprawling. You know, they're, they're the shortest one is yes. nine minutes and 20 seconds, which I think I'm trying to think that might be my favorite. The mother of the this is mother? the purple yeah. Yeah. yeah, I yeah, like yeah, that yeah. a lot. Thank you. That was actually the first one I did. Um, oh, cool. So, yeah. Did you get to the end of it? Yeah, uh, I I listened to so much over the past couple of days. I bet, I bet. It's, it's always, a, that's not a test, by the way. That's not a test. I just want to say, because I feel like a lot of people listen to it and they don't actually get to the end of that one because there is an actual song at the end. what happens when I'm prepping for this stuff, I'll put it on, but I'm putting it on at my job. 
Oh, you're fine. You're fine. And- Again, <laughs> test. Not, not a, like if you hadn't heard it, that's fine. It's more me going like, maybe I should start telling people this, but I don't know. Like, but it is, <laughs> we'll also say that. So the, the reason it's called mothers, there's a song at the end of that instrumental thing that does have vocals and it's called mother. And that song, it's something that I, that song kind of unlocked something in me as a songwriter. And that let me know that I could, go to a different place emotionally than I had before. Okay. But I was in the middle of writing all these other songs. So to get to your question about the six year gap, I wrote two EPs. I wrote, a, I wrote and recorded a full acoustic EP, like five, six songs. Wrote, wow. Recorded a five or six song rock EP. And I was planning on putting them out at the same time. They're done. And then I realized I hated the way I was singing on them. I hated the way it sounded. I didn't like my voice. I didn't like my performances. I didn't think I was doing very well. Wow. Uh, I was struggling and I, I felt every, like every time I played it for people, they were like, well, you know, this is cool or whatever. And like, I knew it was my singing. Like I knew the singing was the problem. So really, I was ready to just power through and get them mixed and mastered and put them out. Then I decided to put the halt on it. And I started reworking the vocals for those two EPs. And in the middle of that, I just, I started, this is all pandemic during pandemic, you know, like, so I had written those two EPs in 2018, 2019, was getting ready to put them out at the start of pandemic and pandemic really kind of put a halt on my mentality for a lot of, same with a lot of people, you know, but what it kind of did in hindsight that I didn't realize until, you know, once we kind of started, once I started came, coming out of it was it gave me time to reevaluate my creativity in, in a way that I hadn't before. And I stopped thinking that my voice was just bad and I would have to deal with it. And I started going and I started realizing that this is like playing guitar. I need to practice it and I need to do it more and I need to take lessons and do all this other stuff. And so while I didn't take lessons from a physical person, I bought just woodshed and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I just practiced and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And so part of the reason those EPs didn't get, they're they're sitting unreleased is because it's like, it's hard for me to go back to stuff that I've finished once it's finished. So it's like, it'd be like, I'd almost have to go back and like deconstruct those songs and rewrite them. But at the same time, I threw up, pandemic i wrote three hours worth of stuff and on top of those wow right so like so in in the spring of 2021 i was i found myself in a place where i had started to write i wrote sincerely paul which became the first song in the ep was like okay even my my simple i uh was having computer problems so i just plugged my guitar into my ipad and started demoing it on there like i remember speaking of writing songs in one go i i was frustrated with some work stuff started mucking around on a friday evening and six hours later i had the the full structure and basis of the song so that when my computer was fed just dumped it back into logic and started making it better you know oh wow (laughs) but that being yeah and, and that that song 
is a conversation where it's basically um, it's Job on the beach ripping his clothes, throwing dirt in his face, saying, why God me? But it's my version of that is like, instead of staying on the beach, I just walk into the ocean and I'm just looking up and I'm having this conversation with both. It, it, I don't know if it's God or if it's my higher self or whatever, you know, cause I, I'm not super, I'm not a Christian, you know, but I, I do believe in spirituality and stuff like that. But I, okay. You know, and a lot of the album is a conversation with my my higher or lower self, depending on which uh, which song I'm not, sometimes both. But and that was me, you know, just like like allowing myself to really just vent these feelings and these emotions. You know, so that's why like the, there's no real chorus. There's just a breakdown where I scream, yeah. <laughs> you know? and that's that freed up my notion of what these songs that I could write be. And then I want to say next, I did write ambient next. I feel like, like, you know, so it just kind of all just led to itself, ah, Okay. you know, but to, to get back to guitar scapes, like guitar scapes happened during all of this because I, during lockdown, I wasn't able to go anywhere, you know, and, and I would get frustrated and I found myself like just recording me doing what I did anyways, which is just fucking around with my delay pedal. My I have like six delays. I'm running out of time. I got the volume pedals. I got all these, so I just found myself just mucking around and looping, you know, with looping things. And, and I started recording them and, and realized like, Oh, okay. This could be a thing. Yeah. So I, I, I think I recorded maybe like eight and then four of them are what are on the album, you know? Oh, cool. And it's like, it's like, and I don't record, I should record every time I do that, but I don't, cause I do that. I do that like dozens of times, hundreds, well, hundreds of times a year but I really recorded a handful of them. And I just kind of just tried to remember to hit record when I really felt like I was in a place. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah. really, I'm really enjoying the new album the songs from the giant's chair first. Okay. First of all, you explain sincerely, Paul. And I love, I think that that is my favorite song on the EP. It's got this great post. Oh, that means sound. a lot. Thank you. And yeah. honestly, it, the way you explain it makes so much sense because I I hear such a huge leap forward from a girl a tree a dream in both songwriting and performance. Everything is just just taking this huge leap forward and it's noticeable. Thank you. I'm I'm really I'm really uh, happy to hear you say that. I'm really and and not to be egotistical, but I'm really that that's for myself as well because like that was my real. I really wanted to, at the end of the day, I really wanted to make something that sounded as humanly good as I possibly could. And without, you know, cause everything on this CP is me. Like I have no one else to blame for anything <laughs> but me. You know, it's like, if there's stuff I don't like on, you know, a girl of a dream, I can maybe like be, be shitty and someone else. Cause I did have other people help me out on it, but yeah. this one is all me. And I, I also, it, I pushed myself something that I hadn't really done ever or really considered or thought about. Um, but I, I started, there's this uh, YouTube vocal instructor called Chris Lipe and he, he talks about um, characters a lot, like singers having different characters talking to each other or coming through in vocal lines where it's like you deliver one line with one character, deliver another line with this, or maybe in the verse, you've got a character and then of course you've got a different. And, it, yeah. and he's talking characteristic to your voice, I think largely, but he does mean it in kind of an acting way. And I started doing that as well. So it's like with, you know, with ambient, there's kind of a higher, it's not quite falsetto, but it does come from a higher head mixed with the chorus having these lower guttural like <clears throat> yeah. you know 
and, and playing with those sorts of characters, you know, playing with those sorts of like, and, and part of it is acting and that I have to like when singing live, I'm like, in order to hit parts correctly, I do have to remember the face that I make like, Oh, this part's easier. If I'm like, eh, you know, and you, for those who can't see me, it's like almost like making a weird smile, but that's right. where part of that sounds from. And then other places like lowering my jaw, lowering my tongue. And like, and so like, like having that bit of, for lack of a better term, acting into it actually is a part of the, the singing and is a part of the performance. And that is something that I had never considered before. Yeah. I, I, not being a singer myself, I never realized that. That's, mm-hmm. that's fascinating. I don't know if anybody does that. Something that he, he, this guy, you know, Chris Lee Bay really kind of like goes after a lot, you know, and, and I started with that. I started looking at a lot of singers I really love and can sing nothing like I can, I like, I can, I will never be able to sound like me. I'll never sound like Daryl Palumbo, never sound like Mike Patton, all that. But it started helping me understand their performances in that they are kind of like inhabiting these, especially more theatrical, operatic people like Palumbo and, and Patton. And uh, and actually, at, at, band, at rehearsal for this show, uh, me and my bandmates, like we loved Craig Wedren from uh, Shudder to Think. And you listen to that Pony Express, oh, that album yeah. is such an operatic, theatrical album. And it's like, we're sitting there like doing ex French t-shirt acapella because we know it so well because of his, you know, his voice is so, you know, he's like, Oh, back the road, you know, and I do it because my voice is shot right now. Um, <laughs> post convention, uh, post convention talking a lot and then post show screaming my lungs out. But like, you know, you, you listen to that dude on that album and I'm sitting there like we're, we were playing through some of that stuff the other day during one of the rehearsals, just kind of goofing off and talking about it. And I, God, no wonder I loved Glassjaw and Mike Patton and all that stuff because I came from Shudder to Think first. That's one of the earlier ones I heard. But it also helped me go like as my limited fashion, you know, because I do understand my limits as a, as a singer right now. It's like, but it also helped me understand like my where I'm pushing for right now and where I want to go is a little bit more like theatrical in that way. And, and I don't mean like fucking Hamilton or anything like that. I just mean like pushing those characters, pushing like, you know, doing something lower or doing something higher, you know, like that sort of like figuring out those characters and those voices and like telling the stories that way melodically. Does that make sense? And, yeah. and this EP is the start of me doing that. And also it's just the, the EP is the culmination of everything I've learned how to do, whether it's like be, being a, a better singer, a better songwriter, and also learning to program and perform, you know, learning to program drums, you know, cause all the drums are, are it's digital drums actually, but using like uh, get good drum libraries to, to program such naturalistic sounding drums, but then wow. also learning how to produce that. And I'm not using their drums straight out of the, the box, quote mm-hmm. unquote. I'm sitting there going like, how can I get this to sound like Steve Albini? How can I get this to sound like, you know, like, cause like with some of my favorite, I always talk about with drums, like some of my favorite touchstones is, uh, uh, the Jesus Lizard and Chevelle's first album. Oh yeah! Like everybody goes to Nirvana with Steve Albini, but I'm like, no, I go for the weird, like not weird, but like I go for the stuff that a lot of people want. And Failure, Magnified, you know? Yeah. Like drum sound is like there's nothing. And while the drums on my EP don't sound anything like that, I'm not trying to sound like Steve Albini. I'm just sitting there. That's my frame of reference in my head of like it needs to sound big and in a room. It needs to sound a certain way that vibes that feels live, you know? And fortunately, like, you know, I've been very, very blessed. Like 
the biggest giveaway that I'm not a drummer is some of the stuff that I've programmed. Like some drummers will be like, well, you can't actually do that at the same time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, cool. Like, I, that, you know, and and we'll so I've the been next learning one. how to play drums. Like the audience can't see me, can't see this, but I actually have like an electronic kit that I'm oh, cool. learning how to play drums on. So that's awesome. <laughs> you know? it's all because I'm sitting there like, I want to be a better, I want to be a better songwriter, you know, yeah. at the end of the day. So learning, learning how to physically play it after teaching myself over the last few years to program it and to get good at that, learning how to physically play it, it already helped me so much. Cause like the new batch of songs, like the drum parts that I'm writing for that stuff is much more fitting towards what a drummer can play. It's still not a hundred percent because I am hey, not that good yet, but, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's better. It, it's, it's a better stab in the dark than if I go those three hours worth of music that I told you about that mm-hmm. I, that I didn't put out. Like you listen to some of my early attempts at drum programming and you're, you're going to be like, well, that's, there's, there's some drums there. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the CP is kind of like you storyboarding for your next albums for what's to come. Not, yeah, not a bad, not a bad way to look at it. I am, there is going to be a theme. Like so my, my plan you know, and hopefully this is the plan that the universe can get in line with. But my plan is to put out the next EP over the summer. And then I've actually started working on, I have the uh, a third EP for the fall. It's written. Um, and, I, and I'm listening to, I'm through the thing of like, because it, it's written and I wrote it very fast because three of the songs are from that three hours with music I trashed. Oh, okay. So like I pu- I'm pulling those out. And so that, that helped the writing process go smoother, but I'm also listening to it a bunch now going like, is this thematically work? Does this make sense? Do I, am I still as passionate about this stuff as I was also since half of it doesn't have lyrics, what is, how do I close out the themes that I'm trying to talk about here? You know, because it's like, if you take, if you take the opening theme of of sincerely Paul and someone, you know, crying out to their higher self or to their maker or whatever, and then you follow the through line to the end of the question, you know, we're standing in in the middle of hell and saying, where do we go from here? You know, there's a, yeah. And the next EP kind of, was that through follows that through line and then the last okay. one is kind of like trying to I, 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 I don't know i'm still working out the themes but yeah you know i i and that's in, and that's interesting to me because i've always thought that way about comics you know and tv stuff and all that but i've never thought that way about music even though i'm a big fan of albums that do that and i don't consider these concept albums they're just theme albums you know mm-hmm. like i'm a big marvel fan especially that first i mean that sound like everybody is you know but like that there's a story there even if you don't know what the story is you can tell it's cohesive narrative you know you can tell it's cohesive thematically you know and same with like a lot of coheed stuff obviously yeah you know there's a theme and then he's writing literal narratives and all that and i'm like and i'm not trying to do that like he's writing stuff with like dialogue and back and forth i'm like i ain't trying to do that <laughs> love it love you claudio and that's not where my head's at but right. I, I do I do appreciate a good thematically linked album. You know, I do appreciate like, yeah. Cause like, I know that they, that it's not, and this is probably going to sound like a weird touchstone, but I'm a, I'm a big, my chemical romance fan, especially, Oh God, what's that album? Uh, the one before black parade. Um, my daughters would know. I don't, I'm now anyways, I'll, uh, hold on. It's going to bug yeah, me. I know. I, uh, <laughs> I'm the same way. It's going to bug me until I look it up. I apologize. And thankfully you can edit this out. Unless yeah, you just no want worries. to make me look really bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> three cheers for sweet revenge. Um, okay. Like I know that that's not a concept album, but it has a loose theme and concept to it. So it feels like a beginning, middle and end. And I like that, that, that kind of idea, you know, and 
I feel like because the album has kind of gone away in a, in a loose sense, I'm kind yeah. of taking the shittier version of what The Weeknd did 10 years ago, and he released like three mixtapes, whereas I'm just going to do like three EPs that eventually, and it's actually what Failure did. Like I'm, I'm doing three EPs that eventually will make up a cohesive long form thing, you know? That's a good point. It's a good point. I, I like the title, Songs from the Giant's Chair. It sounds kind of like Tears for Fears did a prog rock cover album. No, you nailed it. You nailed it. Um, it's a Tears for Fears ref, which is also, uh, if you go into the history behind, behind that album title, they were referencing uh, the movie Sybil. Oh, okay. Uh, right, with where she felt, basically she felt comfortable in her, her psychiatrist's big chair. Yeah. But there's a Kansas City kind of like noise rock band from the 90s, uh, and I think they just recently got back together called Giant's Chair. And because I, I had come up with the title for the two, so there's the two songs that are in the middle of the album and they're the crux of the album is When Giants Slumber and The Giants Awake. Mm-hmm. Those were written as one long song that then I just split up for tra- title tracking, you know, titling purposes. Okay. But so the title was always, the initial title was, was always When Giants Slumber. And then when I split them up, I was like, well, it makes sense to, to call it slumber, those quiet ones slumber and then the loud one awake. Yeah. But when I was going to title the album, uh, I really liked the notion that played on, you know, because there's a bunch of other titles in consideration, and I was kind of crowdsourcing it amongst, amongst my publicist and uh, uh, the label guy. Okay. The uh, Haunted Birthday Records. I was like, which one do you all like better? Because, like, I, you know, it's like, I'm just like, I can go with any of these. And that one, and plus amongst my friends, that one to win out. And I, nobody ever told me why, but in, <laughs> I just liked the idea that layer-wise, it referenced one of my favorite albums, which is Songs from the Big Chair. And then you calling it putting in giant's chair was not only a reference to the giants in the album and the giants of of emotion and trauma that the album is dealing with but also that you know this 90s band that like a lot of people probably aren't aware of that was big and playing around a lot when i was younger so i just liked that yeah i love that that is great so yeah thank you so how can people pick up the album how can they find it yeah it's it's out on Spotify and Apple Music now. Um, yeah, well, it's anywhere. Honestly, it's everywhere. So it, it's, you know, YouTube, Google Google Play, all that stuff. But Spotify are the big ones, obviously. And then uh, I do have a, a limited run of cassettes out via Haunted Birthday Records. Man, cassettes. So if you go to hauntedbirthday.com. Yeah, I know, right? I've got a question. Has there ever been any time where your art and your music cross paths or connect? Or do they influence each other in any way? Oh, that's question um well i mean they they cross paths in the sense that i do all my own album art so well, actually with one caveat so for a girl tree a dream i did that all that art and there's like uh, liner notes that i put up as a pdf for download that i did and then for um songs in the giants chair I, I that's all those are all photos the yeah the cover and then the if you look on the inside of the set they're actually photos that i've adjusted a little bit but they're photos i took when i was drunk one night uh <laughs> hanging out in Atlanta, and i always liked them because they were very so abstract looking so i've awesome. kind of become obsessed with like weird blurry photos lately uh, but uh <laughs> so anyways um so that's where like my art intersects in that i literally do all the design and it's my handwriting that you see on all that stuff oh okay. um guitarscapes is my handwriting but the cover was actually a painting my friend summer um, we used to be in a band together, uh, mid two thousands, but my friend Summer, she does these things where she'll get drunk and paint. And so she, <laughs> I, I love them. Um, and, and so much so as I've for people and uh, like my girlfriend has been hanging in her house, wow. but I asked her, I was like, Hey, can you do me a couple that I can choose one from for this cover? So she did me too, sent them to me and I scanned it in and that's, and that's the cover. Oh, uh, I just, awesome. yeah, <laughs> that is so great. I love it so much. And I, 
Yeah, she sent me another one, so I told her I'll use it for an eventual other volume of Guitarscapes because it's like I love both of them. There's no reason to hide either of these. Oh, you know, man. and Guitarscapes isn't the thing that needs liner notes. Like, right. what's the liner note uh, written and performed by me? Yes, by me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really envious of your talent. I mean, it, I play oh, okay. noisy guitar myself, but nothing, you know. But the artwork just i mean i've got a bunch of things i'm trying to do and if i had your artwork I, your ability i could get them done i i yeah well and you know what man i will say that like i i the barrier to entry for that kind of thing is so is so changed now and i and i, I don't say low in a bad way i say low in a good way like it's like having garage band on your phone the barrier to entry is that you don't need a huge studio and same thing with art and stuff like that. Like you can actually kind of using all the, using a lot of these different apps, like, you know, you can kind of find ways to create things without needing to sketch or whatever, you know, it's like, if you can see it in your head yeah. and you can photo or kind of collage some things. So that's something I would maybe look at is look at on your phone or on your iPad, look into like getting, looking into what you can use. And I'm happy to recommend offline, happy to recommend apps for you to pay, to take a look at. But yeah. if you're seeing something like start taking photos and you can start collaging and editing and color adjusting and there's, there's a whole world of open to you that exists, you know, because, you know, people have worked to make things for people like you, you know, I, I yeah. like they're, they're tools for me that I love, but what they're a lot, what a lot of this stuff is meant for is meant for the casual person who wants to do something, but you know, is like, how do I do that? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love that. I I'm all for the democratization of all of it. Make all, you know, same thing with filmmaking. Like I started shooting short films using my, using my phone, you know, yeah. and it's like teaching myself how to edit in DaVinci Resolve. But then now I do all the editing on my iPad because there's an app called LumaFusion that's so much easier for me to use oh. and quicker because, and also because I can edit using that same app on my phone and then send myself a project to my iPad and switch back and forth. So it's, oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> Man, yeah. all right. Where can people follow you on social media and check out it, other live shows that might be coming up or sure. some, you know what you're doing in the world of Archer or any other projects that you're working on? Sure, yeah. My central hub is just kevinmellon.com. Uh, K-E-V-I-N-M-E-L-L-O-N.com. Um, but then on Twitter, I'm at K Mellon. And then same thing on Instagram, at K Mellon. And then I've got music accounts on both, but you can find those through the main accounts. Like, you know, okay. um, and you'll see, you'll see on all of that stuff, you'll see, I mostly stay, I stay pretty up to date on Twitter and Instagram. The website gets updated every few, every month or so. Um, I'm working on trying to figure out what's the best way to update without inundating five without having to do five different sites and yeah. it's so annoying um uh, yeah. you know because my, my instagram tends to auto populate my facebook so that i yeah. don't have to go there as much unless i really want to you know um and as much as people bitch about twitter mine's so curated i have good conversations and interactions there so oh that's it's, good you know. <laughs> and that's gonna yeah change. i i um you know and as far as uh uh, updates on like animation and stuff like that i do try to keep everything updated the unfortunate thing is like I, I tend to be on a lot of stuff i can't talk about for months to years at a time so i tr I try to you know it's like because like with hitmonkey i couldn't really talk about it until like a month or two before it actually started airing oh, so i spent three years on that show not being able to say what i was doing wow <laughs> gosh yeah yeah that's crazy but, you know I mean, that said yeah, so that said, go watch, you know, Hitmonkey season one, go watch Archer season 12 and for your bodies for, like I said, we're working on season 13 right now and go watch Hitmonkey so that uh, Hulu and Marvel know that we, you guys want more of it. So. Yeah, for sure.
Yeah, as far as live shows go, putting the band together for this, what was supposed to be a one-off show, did light a fire under my ass, too, especially with the guys that I, I played with, because it's all people I've known for, like, they were guys in my high school band. Oh, cool. Um, and it lit a fire under me, and it lit a fire under them to be like, you know what, we like doing this, we like playing with each other. I got texts from all of them, you know, today saying, like, let's do this again. So it lets me know that, like, it's validating to feel like I'm doing something that other people want to be a part of. Yeah. And that's, I don't know how any other guests feel about that, but I'm super grateful uh, that anybody wants to do anything with me. So, you know, it's <laughs> like, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know, like, maybe it's just imposter syndrome or whatever. But so it, it I, this plan of doing more EPs, I'm going to try and do something that like I've always felt about like music and, and shows and stuff like that. I can't tour. Uh, I can't at least not, you know, the way that I would need to, to really support an album and stuff like that. But what yeah. I can do is I can try and create special events. So what I, what I'm going to try and do is knowing this long game is to set up the next EP release show or shows and stuff like that. Okay. Set up the, the one down the line. That way it makes it like a, like a movie or like, you know, makes it something more special. It makes it an event that people want to be a part of. And that like, Oh, you know, this is a cool way to celebrate with this thing, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's like, I did like a, just a quick and shitty Facebook live last night for, so that there's some, my, like, you know, my, my, my girlfriend and then some other family members could watch the show who couldn't make it. And watching all these other bands do live shows during pandemic really got me thinking about like, okay, because I can't tour, like, and because I, at this point I can't tour, you know, things could change, but like, yeah. what are these other ways that I can be creative about it? So I've, uh, that's something that I'm going to look into, that I'm looking into, and I feel like going forward will be a way to, uh, that people can kind of connect with what I'm doing is hopefully by doing these special events slash online, you know, stuff like that. So. Uh Awesome. Awesome. This has been a blast, man. I, oh, first, first time for, for a storyboard artist, comic artist. So this is, I learned a lot. Dude, I, no. And I want to say, I know I said it to you, I know I've said it before and I'll just keep repeating it, but I was super stoked when, uh, uh, when Melissa, the publicist, you know, who's been working with me on this stuff came at me with your thing. I was like, ah, I listen to this podcast. That's awesome. awesome. You know, I, I'm a big fan of um, you know, and clearly I need to go back and listen to your archives, but I just listening to the, the dozens of hours that I have that you've done over the last like year or so, like <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of the kind of conversations that you have, the space that you allow your guests to have to really kind of talk about stuff. And you've been very gracious with me tonight doing the same thing and letting me do what I'm doing right now, which is ramble, and <laughs> <laughs> just ramble on. <laughs> no, man. That's why I started it. I wanted to hear these stories. I didn't want it to be interview questions where you have, here's, here's question A, you have 30 seconds to answer it. Then we go to question B. That, I want you guys to say what you want yeah. to say. Yeah. No, I mean, I try to make, it's like, as you know, doing these kind of like, I'm sure you deal with this with other people as well, but doing these multiple podcasts and stuff like that, I really try to, even if I'm answering this, a similar question, you're not asking me the same question. You're asking me a different angle on it, but also I try not to give you a pat answer. I try to make sure that like when I'm talking about it, it's like, I'm talking to you and telling you this answer, which is going to be different than the other person. And it's not that the information is different. It's just that the conversation is different. The person receiving and the information is different. And I, I really, I really appreciate that. And I, I do, I hope your audience appreciates you because I feel like you're doing really conversational work with, with this stuff. And, Thank you yeah. so much. <laughs>